0: All right, if you're not in John already, go ahead and join me in the book of John uh, chapter 6. This morning, we are going to be looking at the fifth sign that John hand-selected to persuade and convince his readers to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's, that's why he's writing his book. Uh, we had just looked at the fourth sign. That was the feeding of the 5,000 men, right? Really probably 15,000 people as we've talked about going through that account. This this amazing miracle that Jesus did. And as a result of that amazing miracle, the, the crowd was in a frenzy. If you remember last week, the crowd was so pumped up about what they had seen Jesus do. They said, you know what? We're going to kidnap him and force him to be our king. And and Jesus knew this was coming. So he's like, "I'm I'm getting out of here. I'm getting away from these people because it wasn't God's timing. It wasn't God's plan for that to do so. So Jesus, it says he removed himself for some time alone. We're going to kind of start there this morning. Um, what we're going to see is as Jesus moves to, to go by, be by himself, he sends his disciples away. He sends them away on a boat. So he's completely alone, and that's going to set the stage for this miracle um, in, in John's account. Now, what we're going to see, what's different about this miracle we're going to look at this morning, this walking on water miracle, um, is it's a private miracle. It's it's only for his disciples. There was there was another miracle that he had done earlier the the turning of the the water to wine in Cana. It was semi private. Some of his disciples saw it. Some of his servants knew about it, but not not everybody knew about it. it wasn't a public deal. It was kind of a private. This is going to remain true here. Now, I want to set the stage for the disciples. You know, th- these poor guys. I, I they get a bad rap. Okay, and. But they're just like us. They're a bunch of screw-ups. And, and, you know, if we looked at certain days in your life, you'd probably be pretty embarrassed to have that written down, too, you know? So we got to give these guys credit. They're going through a lot. They've had this—if uh, you want to paint the scene as we get into this morning's text—they've had quite an adventurous week or maybe even a couple of weeks, definitely a few days. They've just gotten back from their two-by-two two missionary journey. Okay, they've been teaching the word of God. They've seen people respond. They've been healing sick people. They've been doing miracles all in the name of Jesus. So you can imagine the height that they felt to that ministry. They came home. They're like, man, we want to we tell Jesus what we did. We want to share these war stories. Jesus like, I want to hear him too. So they try to get away, right, alone to kind of catch up and they can't get alone. This is when the crowds just start chasing them down. And so Jesus says, man, they're like sheep without a shepherd. I, I need to attend to them and this sets the stage for the feeding of the 5,000. And you see, in the disciples' mind, it's like we've already been doing ministry, just send these people away. Like, just they need to go fend for themselves. And Jesus kind of modeled what it looks like to care for people, how to disciple. People. So he's discipling his disciples. They participate in the feeding of the 5,000. They behold this miracle. They're at the height of heights again. They're like, man, Jesus is incredible. And he is. And they say, all right, well, let's, let's get in this boat. He's sending us away. Let's just get to the other side. And what are they probably thinking about? I cannot wait to go to sleep, right? It's been a long day. It's been a long night. The crowds are being sent away. And now we've got to, we've got to row ourselves across the Sea of Galilee. We do this all the time. No big deal. Until it is a big deal. And we're going to see that they are within a hair's breadth of losing their life on the Sea of Galilee all in a matter of hours. They're going to, we're going to see this. And so they've got this, this uh, roller coaster, if you will, of emotional experiences as we kind of get into this miracle this morning. You know, Tom Constable said if the feeding of the 5,000 was a lesson, then Jesus walking on the water was a test to follow the lesson. It was a, a test to solidify the lesson they were to have learned. And so we'll see. Poor guys, they probably didn't learn it. In fact, we learned from Mark's account that they didn't learn it. But they got it eventually, right? The gospel got to you eventually. It came out of those 11 men being faithful to share it. So they did something right. They did many things right. Uh, this morning, though, we'll we'll observe some things. So let's let's set the stage for this miracle. Let's go to verse 16. And in verse 16 uh, and 17, it's, it reads this. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat. They went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. And so again, when when evening came. Now, we had seen this earlier in the account. In fact, Matthew said it was the onset of evening that caused Jesus to want to feed the people because it was a little too late to send them back to their hometowns to get bread it was evening had started so this is later in the evening this is you know it's it's getting dark so to speak as we as we see here they they're going out so this is later in the evening and as we mentioned in all the other accounts Jesus or 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 the other accounts mention it John doesn't actually mention it it's just not a detail he brings up but Jesus had actually initiated the disciples departure in fact Matthew is going to tell us this immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And we had sent the multitudes away. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. And so we see that Jesus had a plan in sending them away. He said, go to the other side and I'm going to go spend some time with the father in prayer. So he's reconnecting with the father. He's Establishing this time of solitude to pray and spend time with the Father, which is really interesting, because typically as we go about our life, when do we, when are we the most fervent in prayer? Before a ministry opportunity or after? We get all jacked up and cranked up before the ministry opportunity, and then when it's done, we're just like, oh, <laughs> we could crash, you know. And it's so interesting. Here, here's this full day, and and it's too important to Jesus not to reconnect with his Father after everything's been done. You would think, man, I just, when I'm done with a full day of of ministry, like, you know, oftentimes we just came back from Liberia. What's the biggest thing on my mind at night? The pillow and the mattress. I mean, that's, that's what I'm focused on, right? Getting some rest. Jesus goes back up to spend time with the Father. Now, why was there a boat there? Well, earlier in the account, we saw that they had taken a boat to get to where they where the feeding of the 5,000 was. So that's probably the same boat that they left in. It was probably waiting for them. And we see that John tells us that they went over to Capernaum. Now, if you like to go back and forth between accounts in the Gospels, when you're able to, you're going to see a little bit of a discrepancy because Mark is going to tell us that he made the disciples go to the other side. They went to Bethsaida. So did they go to Capernaum or Bethsaida? Well, let's, um, let's kind of pull up this map here. If you recall, this is, this is kind of that, the topographical map of the Sea of Galilee. It shows the, the mountains surrounding the sea, just kind of the uniqueness there. And over here is, is roughly where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. That's in Bethsaida. I mean, it still belonged to Bethsaida, but it was a little bit further south, uh, as you can see down the coastline. And, and what we're going to see here is Capernaum is, um, in, is right here, okay? Right next to Bethsaida. So the question is, why does one say they went to Capernaum? Why does one say that they were heading to Bethsaida? Well, Bethsaida proper, it, it, when you look at the the map and where Bethsaida was, it seemed to straddle the Jordan River. It, it was a city that was on both sides of the Jordan River. Um, the west side was toward the city of Capernaum, where the territory lines were very close. In fact. This is just kind of another picture of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see that they were leaving that area to go into that area. But where were they at in terms of the border, the borderline of Capernaum and Bethsaida? It's probably in the same area. So, uh, you know, those that are local here, we understand this. If you ask somebody to get, how do you get to Peachtree City or Sharpsburg from here? Some of you would say, oh, yeah, you just hop on 34 and just and go. It'll, it'll take you there. And some of you would say, hop on 54. But we're not contradicting ourselves, right? Because we know 34 at some point turns into 54. Where does that happen, by the way? I don't, I don't even know. It's somewhere, somewhere over there on the drive. It just, uh, it magically turns into 54, right? And so we wouldn't be confused by that. That's not saying anything different. But to somebody that was outside, it might look like it was different. So they're, they're heading that direction toward Bethsaida. The other possibility, and, and, we should bring this up too, is, is the trip could have been designed to go in two lakes. First to Bethsaida, and then they would move on to Capernaum. We don't really know. Uh, what we do know is that they, they left the northeast side of the, of the lake where they, the feeding had happened. They were going to the north side or the northwest side toward that area of Capernaum and Bethsaida up in that region. The other thing that we know is, when when Jesus gets done with the discourse that we're going to have in chapter six, he's in the synagogue at Capernaum. So they ended up in Capernaum. Eventually, even if they weren't heading there uh, initially, or however that however you would explain it to the border, whatever. That's that's kind of bringing those trying to bring those two together. So part of the reason, uh, also, just another thing to consider that they might have started toward Bethsaida. But what we're going to see is something in this story. Um, could explain why they got blown off course a little bit, and and what what has happened is there's a big storm that's going to arise on on the lake, and um, I love the word that that the gospel writer here John uses here because it's 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 this kind of personification of of the water. It's like giving the water uh, human tendencies. That's why I've got a picture of this lovely young child who looks very pleased um but that but this is kind of representative of the lake here we read in verse 18 through 19 then the sea arose because of a great wind because a great wind was blowing so when they had rowed about 3 or 4 miles um we'll we'll read the rest of it there let me just kind of consider this section here this word arose means to wake up fully to arouse a person from sleep to stir up or to agitate things um, an idiomatic way of saying this was the water was angry or foaming. The water was upset. The water was bent out of shape, however you might say it. And maybe you can think of somebody in your life that you have to, when you wake them up from sleep, you have to be very careful because they can wake up very angry. You know, I, I hate to admit this. I'm one of those people. My My poor wife over the years, she I shouldn't even tell this. Okay, I'll tell the story. It's not on Carrie. It's on me. But first year of marriage, I'm I'm laying down. I'm taking a nap, and and I had rolled over in my sleep with my eyes open. Well, Carrie thought I was awake, so she started vacuuming the house, and and I wasn't awake. I was still asleep. apparently my eyes went open when I was still asleep, and she's vacuuming the house. And it woke me up and I got so upset with my wife for being insensitive to me. And she wasn't being insensitive. She thought I was awake, but I just wake up angry sometimes from a nap. So you got to be careful. If you ever travel with me, just kind of be like, just tap me. I've I've learned to try not to be angry, but this is kind of what this word represents is that, that arousal out of sleep and, it, and you're just irritated that someone's woke you up. That's kind of what's pictured here. It kind of describes the suddenness of this storm as well. In fact, um, this is a great description of some of the storms that would happen on the Sea of Galilee. It's really interesting because when you go to that area, from what I hear, this, this area geographically is, doesn't have a lot of storms. It, it's, it's rare that this area has storms because of where it's, it's centered. It's kind of below sea level. It's kind of protected by mountains. And so there's got to be a special wind. And every once in a while, there's this eastern wind, especially on the northern part, of the Sea of Galilee, there's this eastern wind that will blow in over the mountains, and as it kind of blows down, it blows this cold air that kind of mixes with the warm air that just sits over the sea at all times. And when that mixes a certain way, it just it just enlivens that that sea, and, and it becomes very dangerous. In fact, they've got a name for these easterly winds. It's it's Sharkia. That's the name. You can kind of hear the word shark. You know, as I think danger. Sharkia, not Shakira, not not. <laughs> Not the hips, don't lie. It's Sharkia. All right, so it comes in. It blows over the warm air. And then this is what's incredible. In an instant, this sea can be tranquil. It can go to having 10 and 12 foot high waves and swells. This seems to be the type of storm that the disciples found themselves in. So they get in the boat. It's all calm. They're like, oh, we're just going to row over here, over here. And then one of these Sharkia winds comes through. And it's, now they're fighting for their life. Okay. They're, they're straining at rowing. This is kind of setting the stage here. And we see that they were rowing. It says three or four miles. You know, Matthew and Mark's account says that they were rowing, that they were in the middle of the sea. Remember the, the sea of Galilee it's, at its widest point was about eight miles. So this all kind of goes together in terms of the description. And just uh, as a reminder here, they were starting here where the feeding of the 5,000 happened and they were just trying to get up into that region. That's where they were going. But this storm began to kind of blow them around, blow them around and push them out. And so they end up out here in this part of the lake. They're right in the middle, about four miles out, four miles in. Um, by the way, if you've ever been on water that's, that's rough, that's a little frightening. You know, the bigger the boat, the better. This wasn't a big boat. This was a fishing boat that they're in. So they're getting blown around quite a bit. They're out in the middle. It's dark. We're going to find out that it's probably between about three and six a.m. in the morning after a long day already, you know, and it's the, probably the last thing they want to deal with. You know, I would remember I, yeah, I just got back from Liberia, but years ago back in 2012, I went to Sierra Leone and taught a pastor's conference in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone is an interesting place to fly into. You fly into the capital city. But the capital city is almost like Bethsaida. It's, it's uh, part of it's on one side of the bay, it's on the ocean, part of it's on the other side of the bay. Well, the airport side is on this side of the bay. And to get to the, the city side where we needed to go, you have to take a what they call a water taxi. They have a lot of names for it, but water taxi, um, other things. It was basically a speedboat with uh, room for about 15 passengers and, and then your luggage slapped in the back. And when you got on, they say, here, you got to wear a life vest. And have you ever had a life vest where the padding's like ripped out of it? It's just, it's just like, that's what my life vest was. It wasn't going to save me from anything. And, and here we go, taking off into the dark of night across the ocean in Africa, of all things, where you're thinking, I, they probably got fish. They've never even discovered here, like that eat you, you know, kind of thing. We're just bouncing on the wave and it wasn't even a storm. And I was, I was, it was a 45 minute ride across the bay on this speedboat and I was scared to death. So imagine these waves, they're crashing into the boat. It's dark out, it's dark at night and it's hit quickly. Now they've been blown out to the middle of the sea. Now one of the cool things about Jesus and, and the disciples had already had this experience. You know, sometimes when you're studying through your Gospels, you're thinking, well, what about that story? Where did that happen in relation to this? Well, back in Mark chapter four, in fact, hold your finger in John real quick. Let's go to Mark four. want gonna read this. because This will, this will kind of come into play here um, in a little bit. Mark chapter four, verse 35. The, what we're about to read, the disciples had already experienced with Jesus. So this is prior to the event we're looking at in John six. Verse 35 says, and on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. By the way, same kind of scenario, right? Evening had come. They're, they're kind of going across at night. Um, verse 37, a great windstorm arose. That's one of those Sharkia easterly winds arose. The waves began uh, to beat into the boat so that it was already filling. So they were taking on water in this boat. But he was in the stern, speaking of Jesus, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. Now they weren't fearing the storm. They were fearing this man who's in their boat who just shut down the waves and the wind, like it, you know, like he flipped a switch. <laughs> Who is this guy? But they began to say to one another, exactly that. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so they had had some experience with Jesus in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, a little bit different scenario this time. Jesus is not with them in the boat. What I love about this story is, is although Jesus is not gonna calm the storm for them, he is going to enter the storm with them, and it, what a beautiful picture of the Christian life! Because sometimes Jesus does remove the storm, remove the trial, remove the temptation, and sometimes he just steps into it with you, and 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 the, and the encouragement is still the same: fear not. See, we we don't we don't fear not because he's removed all the circumstances necessarily. We fear not because he's with us. That's. The deal ultimately. Now he can remove circumstances, and that gives us a lot to see. So we stop fearing. But oftentimes he wants to hold our hands in the midst of what we're going on. We're going to kind of see that here in this account. We also know from Matthew's account um, that the waves are described as as tossing them. And I and I, I love all this imagery that the writers use. It means t- literally to torture. <laughs> the, the waves were torturing them. They were afflicting them with pain. They were vexing them. They were harassing them. You might even say they were bullying them. You know, it's kind of the idea that you got with these waves. And then we learn in Mark six forty eight that Jesus, um, from his vantage point, saw that they were straining at rowing. And Mark actually uses the same word here. It's translated straining in Mark. It was translated tossed in Matthew. It's the same word. So they're they're getting bullied. They're getting tortured on on the lake. They're not making very much progress. If you've ever seen somebody try to row against a current. And you watch them from the shore. It's like they're not going anywhere, right? And they're just struggling and struggling and struggling. They're just not going anywhere. This is what Jesus sees. But what they don't understand yet, because they haven't seen Jesus. Jesus has already seen them. Jesus has them in his sights right now as they're struggling. They don't really know that. And so when we look at these disciples, they were literally in a torture chamber. Now, that's not the Sea of Galilee, but that's a scary water shot there that you can see. They were in a torture chamber, right? This is, they were in a house of horrors, you might say, um, going on here. And it, it just kind of reminds me of an old proverb which says this man's extremity is God's opportunity. And, and this is a situation where we're going to see that, you know, they were pushed to the brink of their capabilities. They couldn't row any harder than they were rowing. They, they were at the end of their resources they knew in that moment they needed something or someone else to get them out of that situation. Now, whether or not they realized they needed Jesus at this point, we don't know. I think they were up against their capabilities, but this provided a perfect condition for faith. You know, you know. oftentimes I think we we forget in the Christian life that the Lord Jesus Christ cares more about relational intimacy with you than he cares about giving you easy circumstances in life. He's just more interested in you as a person. He knows your name. He wants intimacy with you. He wants fellowship with you. He doesn't want to miss out on a, on a moment in your life. This is how much your Savior thinks of you. And then we, we can't even hardly give him a nod once in a while throughout the day. I mean, how many times you get to the end of the day? You're like, man, I haven't thought about the Lord one time today. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you this. He's thought about you that day. His eyes are on you that day. I can guarantee that. He's more interested in relational intimacy than you ever can and so sometimes he allows situations like this because when we get pushed to the extreme, guess who we start calling? Guess who's on speed dial all of a sudden? Guess guess who was so far down our contact list spiritually for so long and guess who just jumps right up to the top immediately. This is exactly what he's doing with the disciples. You say, well, why is he doing that? They've already had all this success in ministry. They're coming back from a missionary journey. They just participated in the feeding of the 5,000. Because ministry in and of itself is not enough to give you relational intimacy. Do we know that? That Just because you're teaching a Bible study doesn't mean you're relationally intimate with Jesus Christ. It's like you see this all the time where people are so busy, so active. So just do, I'm doing things for Jesus. Doing, giving my life for Jesus. I'm just doing this for Jesus, and they're not even fellowshipping with Jesus. They're terrible husbands at home. They're kicking their dog. They're you know, they're rude to their kids. They won't give time to their wife. They won't you know. And and, and but they're serving Jesus. All about Jesus. You know, just leaving their families behind in, in the process. And, and we're talking about when man's extremity pushes you toward. The Lord. And this is why I think that it's amazing. They haven't seen Jesus yet, but Mark tells us that the watchful eyes of their Savior was locked on them. Jesus saw them. Jesus had them. Jesus knew what was going on. And because of this difficulty, what they're going to find out is that Jesus is more than they ever realized. And I love this because when, when you are at your push to your extreme, it gives God an opportunity to show up and show out in your life. And then when he does that, remember that. So the next time you're in an extreme, you're not reinventing the wheel again. You know, Jesus can immediately pop to the top and go, wait a minute. Remember the last time we were, in fact, I would have loved to to decide, bless their hearts, right? That's, That's a nice way to say that in a Southern way, like they were, they messed up, right? Bless their hearts. Because what did Jesus just done in Mark 4? He had just calmed the waves and the seas. I wish one of them said, "You remember? Remember the last time we were in a storm on the sea? Remember what Jesus did then? Maybe we ought to pray to Jesus to do that for us." That, that doesn't come up. It's like let's just row harder. <laughs> let's just crank. Let's crank down on our resources a little bit more. Let's try to extract more. Jesus is going to show up and show out for him. He's going to show up and show out for them. And hopefully, as you as you see this in your own life, he's going to show up and show out for you as well. Um, eventually, the disciples did see them, did see Jesus, but it wasn't a positive thing initially. In fact, we're going to see this in the next uh, verse here. They were actually terrified. They saw Jesus walking, the text tells us, on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. They didn't see Jesus walking, drawing near the boat and said, oh, he's here. He's going to rescue us. They're like, what in the world is that? Like, It's literally Matthew and Mark tell us they think they saw a ghost. They thought it was like an apparition, just kind of some phantom of Jesus. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, again, I think I mentioned this, but Matthew and Mark put this encounter with Jesus in the fourth watch, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Additionally, Mark adds a unique detail in 648. We're going to, I'm going to read this here, Mark 648. But the detail is that Jesus was just going to pass them by. (laughs) That's like mind blowing. <laughs> he's, I mean, literally it, it, the idea. I mean, you just picture Jesus. Hey, guys, I'll see you over in Capernaum. I mean, he's just gonna, he's just gonna walk by them. This is crazy. This is what Mark six forty eight says. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about uh, again, remember that straining is that word torture, right? They're they're being vexed. They're being tortured at rowing, for the wind was against them. So he saw this, and now about the fourth watch of the night, he he came to them walking on the sea. And would have passed by them. He, he was literally going to just pass right by them. Why doesn't he pass by them? Well, because he cares for them. He sees they're under duress. He wants to meet their needs. And so we see a little bit of his character. So he, again, apparently he originally had no intention of stopping. Hey guys, I'll see you over at Capernaum. I'm, I'm just going to keep walking here. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, you'll, you'll see people try to imitate, you know, walking on water today, and they'll put, you know, some rocks under the water just below the surface, and they try to act like they're walking on water. Jesus wasn't walking on rocks; rocks, he was walking on water, which is which is obviously the miracle. But but he sees their struggle in the sea. I think he sees their reaction to him, seeing it's one of fear, and this is what caused them to stop. That, seeing these things, his eye on them, said, "You know what? I I need to intervene." They need me at a different level than, than what was initially hoped for, that they could just kind of work through this, but they need me. And so we see this, this word, they were afraid. It's, it's the word that means, uh, terrified. They thought they had seen a ghost and, and as such, they were, they were terrified. They were frightened. You know, if you've ever been, um, in the dark again, uh, if you've ever been in the dark, maybe, maybe you've been in downtown Atlanta, maybe you've seen a play down there, you kind of got turned around, you're like, uh-oh, what block am I on? And, and, uh, you see someone in the dark walking directly towards you. It's a little disconcerting feeling. <laughs> like, who's coming here? You know, like, what's the, it, it doesn't even matter. Like, you, you can't even make out, like, what they look like or whatever. You just see this figure walking directly towards you. And this is exactly what's going on. And, and by the way, you're not on a street and someone's walking towards you. You're out in the middle of the water, and someone's walking. You're four miles in the middle, and you see someone walking towards you, and you kind of see why they would be a little afraid. In fact, when you, when you see this word uh, afraid, it's in the passive voice. It, the idea is they were being made afraid. There was an outside source causing their fear. In this case, obviously, we know it was the storm. We know it was Jesus's appearance. They thought uh, he was a ghost. And what were they more afraid of, the the, the storm or the ghost? I don't know. But, but the combo of the two really set them off. Both Matthew and Mark describe the disciples at this point as being troubled. It's, it's a word that means to be stirred up or agitated. Um, he says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And then they cried out, for free, for fear, you could say that there. You might say about this word that their insides were just churning. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a situation where you've been so scared that you feel it physically, internally. You know the the fight or flight mechanism that that adrenaline just kicks in, and you you just feel it throughout your body. This is this is where the disciples are at. They're feeling it palpably. This this fear. Uh, we see here in this verse and uh, Matthew, Mark also that they, they cried out. They, it was like an intense and urgent yell. Now, who were they crying out for? I don't know. It doesn't really say that. It just said they cried out. They were, they were screaming like, you could say screaming like little girls or whatever, but they were, they were afraid. Clearly they were afraid. They were up against it. And, and what I love about what we see about our Savior is, as we see in verse 20, they were terrified, and, and so Jesus came in to comfort them. And I think um, he, clearly, he clearly did comfort them, as we're going to see from the text. Because he's going to say this, it is I, do not be afraid. Um, one of the things that Matthew and Mark record that John doesn't is there's one, one other thing that Jesus said to them. He said, be of good cheer. He said, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. We don't have that in John. We have it in Matthew and Mark's account. By the way, Luke doesn't even record the walking on the water. I don't know if you noticed that. Just these three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke doesn't even record it, but Matthew and Mark both say that he said, be of good cheer before he said, do not be afraid. This, this phrase just meant have courage. Uh, it was spoken of encouragement. He say, say, hey, be courageous. I'm, I'm here. It's, it's kind of be courageous. It's going to be okay. This is going to work out for you. Just show some courage. Don't be afraid. You don't have to worry in face of this danger. And so this is uh, Jesus' way of, of just saying, hey, take courage. Even though the storm is going crazy, even though you didn't know who I was, take courage. It's going to be okay. It's, it's kind of the idea. And then he makes this, this statement, it is I. Now, in our English Bibles, that's what it looks, he's just identifying himself. That's what it looks like. Kind of interesting, if you've ever done a study in the book of, of John, you've ever made this connection before, it's, it's actually two Greek words, ego. A me. Ego means I am. A me means I am. <laughs> it's kind of it's an interesting way to say it is I or I am. Because really what he's saying there is I am, I am. That's how you could literally translate that there's some redundancy here, and I think there's it's here for a purpose. Um, now whether or not Jesus, and this is kind of the debate amongst commentators, is Jesus saying, take courage, I am that I am is here, referencing uh Yahweh and the burning bush to Moses back in Exodus three. Is that what he's referencing? Um I definitely think it's a possibility. We don't I don't know if we can say that for sure, but I want to I want to tie something else in here. I mean clearly he didn't say hey it's me Jesus. He didn't say hey it's your rabbi. He said ego a me. I mean he literally said be of good cheer. It is I ego a me I am that I am and so you can see why that might be comforting. To the disciples. If that's what he is saying, if that's what they understood him to be saying, we're going to learn later that when Jesus gets in the boat, they're going to worship him and say, truly, you are the son of God. So maybe they maybe they did make the connection to Ego Emi. We don't really know. We couldn't say for certain. But could you imagine if that's what he was saying? He's saying, guys, be of good cheer. Yahweh's here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm him. I'm going to take care of this. What's really interesting too is, and again, just trying to tie all this context in. It's just so much, it's so much fun. It's just like, it's so exciting to see like what might have been going on as you kind of put this in. This took place during the Passover time, right? If you go all the way back up to verse four in chapter six, we were told it's this little, it seemed like an insignificant detail. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Okay so they're they're getting ramped up for Passover. What's really incredible about this is is this since it took place near Passover could have had great significance with the passage in Isaiah that was often quoted during Passover. It could have could have Jesus could have been directly tying their mind back to the word of God to identify himself. Let's look at that passage. It's Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. It's a passage that directly referred to the Redeemer of Israel, the Messiah, and this is what it reads. Notice the areas that I highlight as it relates to our passage in John and what Jesus may have been connecting for them. He says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name. You are mine. And then notice this next phrase. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Could it, could it have been Jesus was saying, I'm him? I'm, I'm that, I'm the one that Isaiah 43 is talking about. I'm here. You don't have to be afraid. You're going through waters. I'm with you. Could it have been we don't know I think it's unique, I think it's potentially based on their their reaction, potentially this is part of what comforted them. He says don't be afraid against the middle passive don't allow yourself to be frightened okay I'm here I'm him <laughs> I'm the one you know i I can get you through this i'm Here to walk you through, and so clearly Jesus's presence and his words had a comforting effect because we see in the very next verse they willingly took him to into the boat. If they thought he was still a ghost, to be like, nah, you you just keep going, (laughs) you know, we'll we'll be fine, you know, just keep going. It's like not looking at him because he doesn't exist if you don't look at him. But in verse twenty-one it says they willingly received him into the boat, and and then we see this phrase, and immediately the boat was at the land. Where they were going. Now we'll come back on that second phrase because that's just monstrous. I mean, it's like what? This is incredible. All right, so let's look at the first phrase here. They willingly received him into the boat. Willingly received, they they willed it, they wished it, they desired it. Uh, they actively, you might even say, like they strongly desired him to get into the boat. It was like we're not going anywhere without you. Yes, get into the boat. is kind of the deal. This is kind of what's reflected here. Now there are a couple things, and this is very important. Remember, John is is not recording every detail. That's not his goal uh, in in his gospel narrative. It's not to record every detail. So I want to just kind of point out some things that we miss in this story that Matthew and Mark bring out. Real quickly, there's just a few things. Um, Both of Matthew and Mark record that the wind ceased the moment he got into the boat. We don't see that in John. That would be kind of a cool detail to John, but we get it from Matthew and Mark. So Jesus gets into the boat and the wind he flips the switch again just incredible and they're and they're blown away by that mark 651 then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and they marveled the second thing we don't pick up in the book of John which is kind of a bummer uh, Matthew's the only one that records it this is where Peter walked on water this, this story right here this this event that we're looking at in John 6 but it's only recorded in, in Matthew. And so technically, if you want to say, when Peter came out onto the water, he began to sink, Jesus lifted him out. When he and Peter got back into the boat, then the wind ceased. That's technically what happened. But again, we don't have it recorded in John. It's recorded in Matthew. We also see that Matthew records that everyone on the boat worshiped Jesus. And we're saying, truly, you are the son of God. So it was an emphatic declaration of his identity and deity. Okay, they, they declared this, uh, Matthew says the moment he got into the boat, again, the second time they've seen him flip the switch on nature, just in a, in a heartbeat. Like, this is, this guy's amazing. And that's exactly what, you know, I think it should produce the same reaction in us. This guy's amazing. Jesus is amazing. He, he really is able to, to save you and give you eternal life. He, he truly accomplished what he said he accomplished so you can trust your eternal destiny to him. All right, so we're seeing all of this just develop through these stories. Now, one of the things that Mark shares, which is really amazing, they the disciples were amazed; they were awestruck with wonder. But but Mark tells us that they still did not fully understand the significance of it all. They were kind of blown away. They they were saying some of the right things, but they still didn't really get it. He says in Mark, he says that their hearts were still hard, or their hearts were were hardened. Okay, and so now. Let's move on to that last phrase, um, there, there in John, uh, 621, because it seems like another miracle happens here. That's how it reads, and that's how I would take it. Because, it, by the way, this is only recorded in John, this, this, this idea that, and just look how it's worded, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. You remember how far out were they? Four miles. <laughs> and immediately they were at, the land. So he gets in, the winds and sea, uh, the the winds stop immediately. They fall down and worship him. They wake, they you know, they maybe they get up from worshiping him and they're at the land. Just just mind-blowing uh to think this. So again, another miracle in light of everything going on around them. Jesus Christ was truly incredible. So he apparently transposed the transposed the boat from the middle of the sea to the coastline in a na- nanosecond. Without the natural human process of rowing, without the natural human po- process of the passing of time, he just puts the boat on the land. <laughs> just, uh, it's just amazing, and I and I don't know why. I mean, why couldn't he? Right? He's the great I am. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's worthy of worship. And of course, he can do stuff like this. But but it's still mind blowing to know that we that you could know a Savior like that. That you you have a Savior like that. That that's powerful. That he's so powerful. That that his death can count in your place and save you from your sins. That's the kind of savior we have. Just just mind-blowing. And so it kind of it, it kind of leads us now into the rest of the chapter, because now they're on shore. This follows the miracle. And let's just kind of close out here with the last few verses uh, to, to verse 25. Um, and this is where the interaction with the people is gonna start. Okay, he's he's fed the multitude, now he's kind of moved across the sea. And now he's going to interact with that same multitude. And, and he's going to give what has come to be known as the bread of life discourse. And so in verse 22, this is what we read. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So we see this is the next morning. Um, and the crowd simply noticed this. That when they were being dismissed by Jesus the night before, there was one boat on the sea. They saw the disciples get in that boat and take off. They saw Jesus go up into the mountain. And now as they're still on that side of the sea, they expect to see Jesus still there. And they're like, well, Jesus isn't here. I know the disciples left, but where did Jesus go? It's kind of, kind of the idea. And so they, they must have, they must have figured he's still on this side of the lake somewhere, but they couldn't find him. It's kind of the idea. And so we read, uh, in the next few verses, is, uh, and if you recall, I think, um, in a previous, um, message, I said that they, they say that on the, on the sea line of the, of the Sea of Galilee, you can see across to all the other points on the sea. You can see miles across. You can see across the sea. So I think they probably saw or, or understood, I think the disciples were going this direction. But I also think that there were, um, you know, first century Uber drivers, you know, these boat men, that saw that there was this big crowd over here in Bethsaida up kind of on the northeast side of the lake. So they started taking their boats over. And this is what we're going to see in verse 23 through 24. Other boats from Tiberius uh, near the place where they, uh, or uh, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And so the crowds were probably still in the same general area. Jesus had sent them away for the night, but same general area that they were when they had eaten bread miraculously the day before. And so, again, John's narrative told us that this is where he fed them, right? So they're kind of still in this general area. They want to get to Capernaum now. And then these boats over here from Tiberias, they saw this multitude of people on the other side of the lake, and they said, they're going to need some Ubers, right? You know, there's, the signal out here is not good. We're just going to head over there with our boats, all joking aside. And so they they come over to that area with multiple boats. And then when they get there, there's this influx of boats. They're looking for Jesus. And they just assume, well, the disciples headed that way. Let's go that way. I bet he's in Capernaum. And so this is what they did. They take off to Capernaum. And so they they think that this is probably the best place they're going to find him. So again, now they're leaving that area and they're all converging on Capernaum, and when we see this word uh, it, there at the end of, or it's actually a phrase there at the end of, um, let's find find ourselves here, the end of verse twenty four, where it says seeking Jesus, uh, it, it describes a word that they're looking really hard for him. They're not just like, oh, I kind of hope I see him again, but like they were like in, intensely looking for him, and they were not, the idea is right the night before they were going to grab him, kidnap him, force him to become king. And, and the idea is now, we can't let this guy get out of our hands. So they're intensely looking for him. And uh, it's going to be amazing because Jesus knows why they're looking for him. He's going to call that out when he talks to them. We'll start on that um, kind of next week. But they'd, they'd witness the general direction. So they head off to Capernaum. And then finally, in verse 25, they do catch up with Jesus. They basically ask him, uh, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And, uh, it seems like a pretty innocuous question. It's kind of, this is just like a normal kind of, when did you come here? Oh, I, I came here last night and it could have been done with it. But it's so interesting because this is the question that sets off this entire sermon by Jesus. And what we're going to find, like, like Jesus often does, is he never answers this question directly. He just kind of gets to the heart of the issue with this crowd. He, he kind of just glosses over the pleasantries and gets right to the heart of what they need to hear which he did that already. We've already seen him do that with Nicodemus. We've already seen him do that with the woman at the well. It's the same kind of concept. He's jumping right in. And remember, this walking on the water was a private sign for the disciples only. Okay, so I don't think he was just gonna be like, oh yeah, I walked across the water. You know, that's how I got over here. You know, and really their question, when did you get here, is probably underlying that is how did you get here? Because we saw one boat leave. There wasn't any other boat. You couldn't have walked all the way around by this time. So when did you get here? How did you get here? Et cetera. And, and as we saw in verse 15, uh, we're going to see in verse 26, Jesus knows the motives of the crowd. You know, you and I are not very good at at accurately determining other people's motives. We think we are time. We assume we are time. But Jesus actually knows. And, and in verse 15, he knew they were about to kidnap him and make him king. So he moves away from them. Verse 26, let's read this kind of a uh, uh, in entry in the next week, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see, the motive of the crowd at this point was all material. They said, This guy's a gravy train. We'll never have to work for food in our life. This guy will feed us. Did you see what he did with the kids' lunch? The little Chick fil A you know, kids' meal? He, 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 he split that thing up. We had a buffet. We need to grab hold of this guy so we never have to work for food again. That was their motivation. And Jesus knew it. And it shouldn't surprise us. Again, this is another illustration of what we read all the way back in John chapter 2, which says this. Now, now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself or entrust himself to them because, why? He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so Jesus is still illustrating this truth for us. He did it with Nicodemus, which immediately follows the passage in John 2. He did it with the woman at the well. He's now doing it with the crowds up up in this area around the Sea of Galilee. He knows what's in man. He knows their motives. He understands them completely. He knows what they need most. And that's what's going to lead into next week and following this Bread of Life discourse where Jesus is going to use that phrase again, ego a e me, I am I am that I am the bread of life is what he's going to say, which fits perfectly into Passover time. And we'll kind of get into all that starting next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, we just rejoice um, to look at you this morning. We just rejoice to see your power and your tender care and compassion for your children. Uh, Lord, the way that you... Uh, navigate interaction with us the way that you love us the way that you care we've never seen anything like it we are so uh, in love with you and enamored by you we want you to um, capture our thinking on a moment-by-moment basis may we just be in awe of who you are and what you've done in the past to save us from the penalty of sin Lord, but also what you continue to do in our daily life, the way that you care for us and provide for us. You're just amazing. We just thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.